Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Cedric, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome to Fabulous Folklore with Icy, with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. This week, we're going to have a look at something slightly different, makes a change from all the plant folklore, and we're going to have a look at an actual folklore trope. And in this particular episode, we're looking at the King in the Mountain folklore trope. Now, the reason I've decided to have a look at this one is because there's been, over the last few years, such of a huge boom of interest in superheroes, it does sort of suggest a desire for some kind of high-powered individual to come and save humanity from itself. And it is quite interesting because, particularly when you look at Captain America, who's sort of in suspended animation between the end of the Second World War and now, to then fight Hydra, the folklore option is the King in the Mountain trope, sometimes also called King Under the Mountain or the Sleeping Hero story type. Obviously, King Under the Mountain, not to be confused with the dwarves from Lord of the Rings. But it's quite a popular legend, and there's examples of them from all over the world, particularly Europe. So you've got the likes of King Arthur, you've got St. Wenceslas of Bohemia, and Charlemagne. And that's just a tiny, tiny sample because there are literally so many to choose from. So because of this tendency towards wanting some kind of hero to come and save the day, I thought we'd have a look at what the King in the Mountain motif actually is. We're going to have a look at a variation of it and we'll also have a look at why it seems so popular. So what is the legend? If you look in the Arne Thompson system, it's categorised as folktale type 766, which just goes to show how many types of folklore there are. And in its most general form, you get some legendary hero who rests in some remote location. He didn't actually die. It's also pretty much nearly always a he. He's just sleeping. Not to be confused with, obviously, the Sleeping Beauty and Snow White type stories. This hero is often in a cave of some kind. He might be on an island in some kind of underground chamber. He's pretty much somewhere where he's not going to be disturbed on a regular basis. It does make you wonder what Crossrail might have unearthed. So, folklorist Edwin Sidney Hartland actually points out that the hero is, quote, sometimes believed to be hidden beneath the hills, at other times in a far-off land, or from time to time traversing the world with his band of attendants as the Wild Hunt, end quote. And the Wild Hunt's quite an interesting trope that I will do in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. Now, the hero often has some kind of military background, and he's usually related to the history of the nation where he rests, No one knows he's there until someone wanders in for some random reason and finds him. And we're going to call this someone random just to make things easier. So at this point, one of two things generally happen in the legend. So in one variation, random finds some kind of problem to solve once he's come across the sleeping hero. And when he fails, the hero can't wake up. Random then finds himself back outside the hidden chamber. He usually gets told off by some mysterious force. And no matter how hard he tries, he can't get back into the chamber to have another go. In the second version, the hero does actually speak to Random and he asks him something cryptic. And based on Random's answer, he decides it's not yet time for him to return. Again, Random gets expelled from the chamber and sometimes he ages rapidly when he gets back outside. 
other times he actually dies after telling someone his fantastical tale, which does seem a bit unfair if you've just happened across this chap completely by accident, but there you go. You do also sometimes find that the tale has a villain instead of a hero, so if you look at Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, that sort of riffs on this idea. And in his case, rather than having this sleeping hero ready to return and save the day, he's got the Elder Gods poised and ready to return, which is something Hellboy then runs with. You could have a look at the Norse legend of Loki, who's imprisoned until Ragnarok. And even horror films get involved, and if you look at something like The Mummy, it really plays with this idea, both the 1932 version and the 1999 version, where Imhotep's basically waiting to be awakened by a magic spell. And in these variations, no one actually wants the villain to return. Sometimes the hero isn't alone, and his entire retinue sleeps in the same place. So here we see a crossover from the King in the Mountain into the Sleeping Army type. Now, Ernest Baum categorises the Sleeping Army as motif E502, and for him it refers to, quote, soldiers killed in battle that come forth on occasions from their resting place and march about or send their leader to do so, end quote. This is slightly different when combined with the King in the Mountain trope because rather than the army just marching about, they actually await a signal that their return is needed. The stories never really explain how or why the hero and his army end up in the location and where Baum says the soldiers are killed in battle and they're emerging from their graves, that's not always the case with the King in the Mountain story. Rather here, the army are waiting until they're needed by the nation again so they're much more positive connotations with them and they're not just you know randomly wandering around the countryside. J.R. Tolkien actually used a variant of the sleeping army when he created the dead men of Dunharrow and in the books Isildur curses this particular group of men for not coming to his aid as they promised and only fulfilling their oath to him or his heir breaks a curse. So this ghost army remains beneath the haunted mountain until Aragorn Isildur's heir calls them to his aid. It's also one of the biggest deus ex machinas in fiction but that's another rant for another time. Now the Brothers Grimm actually had a version of the King of the Mountain legend about Frederick Barbarossa who was the Holy Roman Emperor between 1155 and 1190. Now in this version Barbarossa is the only legitimate emperor and he'll reappear on Judgment Day. In the Brothers Grimm version, he does talk to people who find him and occasionally even pops outside, but mostly he sleeps at a stone table in a cave in the Kifhäuser Mountains of Thuringia. Now, if you believe these stories, his beard has grown around the stone table that he's sleeping at, and in some variations of the story, he'll wake up when it grows three times around the table. Now, by the time the brothers had collected the story, it had actually already grown twice around it. At one point in history, a dwarf led his shepherd into the mountain. The emperor woke up, asked the shepherd if ravens still flew around the mountain, and when the shepherd said they did, Barbarossa replied he should sleep for another hundred years. Given the brothers actually collected the tale in the early part of the 19th century, we've actually passed the 200-year point, and there's still no sign of him. So why Frederick Barbarossa? Because of his ambition, his prowess in military matters, and his political skills, if you combine those together, he was something of a superman in medieval Europe, so it's almost understandable that a population might want a leader of that stature to return. Now in the legend, he would return to restore Germany to greatness, which is an interesting point because obviously when the Brothers Grimm were collecting these legends, Germany as the entity we know it as didn't actually exist at that point. That only happened when it was unified in the late 19th century. But anyway, Barbarossa would only return to basically make Germany great again when the ravens stopped flying on the mountain. Now in the 1890s, 
the German Empire built the Kiffhäuser Monument on the site of the medieval Kiffhausen Castle. So despite the fact it's actually a monument to the late Kaiser Wilhelm I, it actually features a statue of Frederick. Now the statue refers to the legend because Frederick literally looks like he's just woken up. So what they're trying to do here is use legend as a means of legitimising the empire's rule. So if people believed that Barbarossa was the only legitimate Holy Roman Emperor and he was the only legitimate ruler, then by linking him with Wilhelm, they're trying to suggest that the German Empire was the natural successor of the Holy Roman Empire. So this is why we have to ask the question, why are King of the Mountain stories important? It's difficult to know if anyone ever actually believed the legends, and this is part of the problem with legends. We don't know if people actually believed them, or if they saw them as folk tales that they just simply retold and passed on because they made a good story, in much the same way that we have Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all this kind of stuff and the myriad of Disney fairy tales. Is that how people see these legends? So we don't really know what ordinary people actually get out of them. Now, for some of them, they're basically just extra tales about heroes who already have lots of legends about their prowess. So if you think about someone like King Arthur, he's got millions of stories about him and all of these different things that he apparently got up to. So having an extra one that he's actually still asleep somewhere under Britain is actually a bit more easy to understand. I mean, if you if you believe he became king because he pulled a magic sword out of a stone, then you can believe he's still asleep somewhere awaiting his return. Now, other versions of these stories hold out a battered sort of form of hope for people. And this runs something along the lines of, it doesn't matter how beleaguered your country is, there's someone out there who's coming to save you. Hartland actually describes the sleeping hero myth as being, quote, a tradition of a heathen god put down by Christianity, but not destroyed in the hearts and memories of the people, end quote. Now, this is obviously problematic because we've no idea if that's genuinely how people see these hero stories. Do they really see them as, you know, this god who's been put aside by Christianity or not? Particularly considering, you know, if Barbarossa was the emperor of, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, that makes that one a little bit difficult. But Hartland also claims that the tradition is free of politics, but that oppression of some form might help give the story more vitality. So this is what brings it back to if a nation feels completely battered by, you know, enemies outside it, this sort of story might make them a bit more hopeful that, you know, all is not lost. And the stories could also provide a way to process the death of a hero or a beloved king. So there's an example given of King Sebastian of Portugal, and he died in a hectic Moroccan battle in 1578. Now, two years later, Philip II, Sebastian's Spanish uncle, eventually claimed Portugal as part of his empire. But because only one person actually saw Sebastian die, quite a lot of people believed the king had somehow survived and would return to take his place rule in Portugal again. Clearly he didn't, so he obviously did die, but that's a side issue. But the problem with this trope is it really does raise the quite thorny issue of national identity. And it does depend on the idea of the nation requiring aid of some kind. So the idea being it's you know, the country needs aid, so it has to call for this hero to help. Well, that implies that there's an enemy, and this can then provoke ideas of us and them, which turns usually another nation into a perceived attacker. And while that's fine in fiction, along the lines of Gondor calls for aid, in reality, such divisive thinking leads into incredibly dark territory, which, you know, history will attest to. And the notion of the one true ruler is also quite tricky. And obviously the King Arthur legends appeal to quite obvious myths. And I mean, no modern leader would attempt to paint themselves as a descendant or heir. 
partly because there's no proof that King Arthur actually existed, but also partly because I think most people would laugh them out of the building. But when you look at the links made between Barbarossa and the Kaiser, that shows that there can be a darker use of folklore to legitimise a ruler if it's based on an actual personage from history. So I think ultimately being aware of these tales is a good way to guard against people actually using them to push their own agenda. And I don't want to get into politics or anything like that, but there have been obviously people on social media talking about you know Britain particularly for various reasons that I'm sure you're all aware of, needing some kind of help in our darkest hour and all that kind of thing. Because we've obviously got a range of our own folk heroes and whatnot. But this is the kind of thing that people are starting to appeal to. It is worth being aware of where these stories actually come from in order to sort of combat the rhetoric. Just a bit. Now, as it happens, because we've talked about King Arthur quite a lot this week, next week we are going to have a look at a specific version of King Arthur and one of the locations where he may be found. So watch out for that one. It should pop up in about a week or so on whatever app you're using to listen to these podcasts. So without further ado, have a fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!